Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. Today's guest is Professor Leslie Thomas QC, an expert in civil liberties, inquests and public inquiries. He has been described as one of the great police law advocates of his generation and a second to none cross-examiner. In this episode, Leslie shares how he prepares his case theory and strategies and also explains how to find and use your voice for effective advocacy. Leslie, do you want to just say hello and tell us a bit more about yourself? Thank you for inviting me to be on the Advocacy Podcast. I'm a barrister. I practice in the field of human rights, more specifically actions involving the state, police actions, prison actions. I do big public inquiries and I'm also a professor of law at Gresham College and a visiting professor at Goldsmiths, University of London. Firstly, can you just tell me how you would describe yourself as an advocate at the beginning of your career and how you would describe yourself as an advocate now? Oh, that's a painful question. At the beginning of my career, I would have described myself as clueless, hopeful, you know, wanting to be amazing in court, but just absolutely hopeless. Now, at this point in my career, I think I'm quite an accomplished advocate. You know, I know what I'm doing and I think I'm reasonably persuasive. And I've been told that, particularly when I'm in front of a jury, juries like my style. And I love higher court advocacy. I have a, what I would describe as a conversational style when I'm in the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal judges tend to like that. But at the beginning of my career, if I can just go back to that, I just did not know what to do. I had subscribed to that myth that advocates were born and not, you know, not made, which is just wrong. I now know that everyone can accomplish a reasonably competent degree of advocacy but there are tips, there are rules, and there are methods that you have to adopt and um, engage in. The one thing about advocacy that I've learned over the years, it's like any skill, the more you practice it, and it does require regular practice, the better you become. So how would you say that your style and approach to advocacy has changed? So I've always been quite a passionate advocate and I like my passion to come through into my advocacy that's just me that's just that's who I am but in the early days I think I spoke too quickly and I would trip up over my words there was lots of um in and ah in my style wasn't very well I didn't really have a style it was just it was just very much not thought through advocacy I had started at a time when there was very little advocacy training and I didn't realize that there was a method to it and one of the main ways I think my style has changed over the years is that I'm much more relaxed in my advocacy you know, a little bit more laid back. I'm not as invested in the outcome. That doesn't mean that I don't care. It just means that, you know, when I'm speaking to a tribunal, whether that be a jury or whether that be a judge, I don't give the impression of desperation. And I think in my earlier years I probably came across as desperate and felt that everything was on the line um, in terms of the point that I was arguing and I, I'm not like that now. 
And with your conversational style that you mentioned earlier, and I suppose it links in with the answer that you've you've just given about not being so attached to the outcome. How did you ensure that your style was conversational? Because that's something that I know definitely juries can relate to. And you can also step it up a notch. So you're having a conversation with judges, if that's who you're addressing as well. So was there anything particular that you decided to work on so that you could have this relaxed and conversational style that was still formal enough for courts? Yeah, I think what I did was try to understand the whole concept of case theory because once you appreciate that every case has a particular theory and you understand what that theory is, you can then have a conversation about it. In the early um, years, I didn't quite get or appreciate the importance of case theory and having a developed case theory. And so I would just think about a result, my result, or I would think about the other side and think that what they were arguing was just wrong. And it wasn't an appreciation. And, and again, this, this comes down to my inexperience as an advocate there wasn't an appreciation that there are many shades of grey as opposed to an argument just simply being black or white. And once you understand that there are various shades of grey, in any case there are, you know, oftentimes there isn't a right or wrong answer, but there are, you know, variations of that answer, you can then begin to have a conversation about it. And you can then begin to unpick it, break it down and say to a tribunal, I'm arguing A, my opponent's arguing B. And I know that you probably can see that there's um, C, D and E somewhere in the middle. But these are the reasons why I think you should um, accept what I'm saying, even though you might feel that there's a great deal of merit in what my opponent is saying. And so it's having that sort of discussion with a tribunal. The conversation comes from understanding stories and understanding that a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's not just having a beginning, middle and end. You you know, you want your story to be interesting. And I remember in my early days, and one one of the earliest cases I did, there was a very experienced solicitor who said to me, after we had won a case, so I thought, what is there to complain about? And this solicitor came up to me and said to me, "Um, Leslie, um, yeah, you've got a lot of passion but you're a bit shouty. And he said something to me. Nobody wants to feel that they've been undermined. We all feel a little bit taken aback when there's criticism levelled at us. That's just a normal part of the human condition, isn't it? But what this solicitor said to me and has always stayed with me is he said, you know, do you listen to music? And I said, yeah. He goes, what music do you like? So I said to him, I quite like jazz. And he said, oh, good good choice of music. And he goes, imagine the jazz that you listen to. Imagine if it was all at one volume all the time, you know, loud. How after a while it would become monotonous and you wouldn't really get the message across in the story that's been told in the composition, the jazz composition that you're listening to. And he goes, you know, jazz is a good example because jazz has dynamics. You have soft moments, loud moments, and moments in between. Sometimes it's very legato, but sometimes it's very staccato. And when you're 
addressing the court, it needs to be a bit like that. And I took that away. It was an epitome for me. It was that kind of eureka moment where I looked at myself and I thought, oh my goodness, I am very one tone, very monotonous, very loud. And if you were to ask many of the opponents that I was against in my earlier years, I think they would say similar things. Not that I wasn't effective, but I could have been a lot more effective in terms of understanding case theory and understanding how you tell a story. Now, how does case theory and telling a story and what I'm saying about your tone, volume, matter. Well, if you really understand the story, if you really understand your case theory, you will know when you need to increase the volume, when you need to pull back, when you need to soften the tone. I do a lot of work in inquests and inquiries and it's really important to get across to juries because much of my work in any inquest, because I'm dealing with deaths involved in the state, we do have juries. And it's really important that the jury understand what you are saying and why you're saying it. Now, here's the thing. Unlike most other areas of law, inquest advocacy is very difficult it's not like civil litigation it's not like criminal litigation you don't get an opening speech you don't get a closing speech so most of the points that you need to make you have to do in your questioning and therefore it's a completely different style of advocacy whereby you can't just rely on you know I'm going to do a really good opening or I'm going to do a blinding closing and bring everything together it doesn't work like that so your questioning and how you question really makes a difference in terms of getting your point across as I've taken my own steps to improve my advocacy I've realized that sometimes the questions that you ask not sometimes actually the majority of times when I'm asking a question I'm conveying a story to whoever's making the decision as well as asking questions of the witness and I was just wondering what steps did you take to improve your own advocacy? The major step I took to improve my own advocacy was when I took a decision to teach advocacy. I've been an advocacy trainer now, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years now, something like that. And when I first took the decision to become an advocacy trainer, that is when I realised what I did not know. It was only then I realised that you can learn advocacy good advocates are not born you know i had this idea that you had natural advocates i think all advocates start in the same place and it's like anything in in life you all start in the same place and that's at the back of the line and then you work your way forward as you get better now how far you progress along the line depends on how much you invest in yourself and your advocacy but what i've noticed is and this is again comes back to your question what did i do to develop teaching taught me a really important um, lesson and that is observation Once I started teaching advocacy and learning the various skills, it made me look and observe more. And there were two groups that I was observing. The first 
was other people in court. It's very easy to spot bad advocacy. Sometimes you can't quite put your finger on why the advocacy is bad, but you know there's something about an advocate that just doesn't gel with the court, doesn't gel with a jury, doesn't gel with you, doesn't gel with a judge, and you know it. The second group that I started to observe was, and I include myself in this, was self-reflection and people who were maybe on my team and people who were doing it right. And I would look at advocates in court and I would be saying to myself, why has she done something that is so effective? What, what is it about her? And I'd look and I'd carefully analyse and, and the real trick was just, just trying to identify what it was about an individual. And oftentimes you'd think, oh, is it style? And then you'd realise it's got nothing to do with style. It's a method or technique or something that somebody uses. So I think once I took the decision to become an advocacy trainer, that made me really begin to reflect on what people were doing in court and how they were doing it. That leads me on to two questions, really, and it's up to you in which order uh, you decide to answer it in. And I was wondering, firstly, about the natural advocacy. I'm quite sure that there's something that you're naturally good at when it comes to advocacy that really fits your character. So, A, what is that? And then the other question, since you mentioned observing other advocates who are doing it right, like who, who impressed you? Let's start with the second question first. You know, who has impressed me? One of the best advocates in the oral tradition at the bar that I've seen, and my mentor has to be Courtney Griffiths QC. I remember when I was a very young advocate, I just started at Garden Court Chambers, which is my chambers in, which is based in London. In my early years, I did some crime, not a lot of criminal law, but I did some crime, as most advocates in common law sets um, had to do. And Courtney was at the time, you know, one of the senior members of Chambers, and he took me under his wing. And at that time, I hadn't done a criminal pupillage traineeship, so I didn't have a clue about criminal advocacy. And I went into court, and I, you know, it was just luck, really, as to whether or not I got a good result or a bad result. And then the opportunity came for me when I was co-defending on a case with Courtney and I just looked at that man in awe he held the court with everything about him he had this majesty when he was addressing the court he was funny he could switch it about in the way that he spoke so he could speak in a very proper British accent and then all of a sudden he would switch to Jamaican Yardie and just have the court in stitches and I thought to myself my goodness what this is telling me is there is no right way of doing advocacy. Because up until that point in time, I had been labouring under the misapprehension that to be a good advocate, you had to follow in the tradition of previous um, good advocates. And here's the thing, the profession in which we work is very white, very middle class, in fact, middle, middle upper class, you know, it's known as a gentleman's profession. And in the past, you know, you had to be a person with 
money to enter the profession because of the way that barristers are paid and all the rest of it. And the role models that we had were middle-class white men and that is what people expected. So you've got your Marshall Halls, your Rumpoles, who speak in a certain way and are expected to address the court in a certain way. Courtney, for me, shattered that illusion. He taught me that you could be just as effective, just as devastating, just as good using your own voice. Well, that made me look and reassess who I was. You may not know this, Bibby, but I'm a Londoner. <laughs> um, when I'm not speaking very slowly, um, I used to speak very fast with a very strong South London accent, because that's that's me. I, you know, I grew up in social housing. My folks lived in a, a housing association flat near council flats. I went to a comprehensive school. You know, um, I used to drop my H's <laughs> and so on. I used to speak with a ever so slight um, Cockney type accent. And then when I came to the bar, I thought I had to abandon who I was. And you see this often. You see people speaking in these really strange tones and you think, why are you speaking like that? And right at the very beginning of my career, I was put under that, that sort of pressure. I mean, I'll give you an example. I went into court on my very first occasion and it was a family, um, I, was, I was in the High Court of Justice in, I think it was Court 37 or Room 37 and I was doing the, the injunctions and it was a, I was doing a family case where I was representing Dad and the mum was, um, there was a dispute over the kids and the mum was trying to get an injunction against Dad. And in court, I went in and I said to the judge, I'm representing the dad. And this judge blew up at me. He was like a volcano. Dad! Dad! We don't use that word in this court. And I was thinking, well, blame me down. What have I said wrong? <laughs> I said, okay. Okay! Okay, you don't use that <laughs> And it was one of those days that I just couldn't say I just couldn't say anything right. You know, you don't say dad, you don't say okay. I went back to chambers and I said, you know, this judge really chewed me out, really made me feel small. What did I do? Oh well, you know, maybe you could have said, you know, the word father. And I was like, but what's wrong with calling you know, on, on a family case, what's wrong with calling the the mother mum and the dad dad? I don't get it. And as a result of that experience, my advocacy changed. I tried to be something that I wasn't. I was using expressions that didn't come naturally to me. It put me at a disadvantage because it was trying to learn a language that I wasn't used to. Now, here's the thing. If you are using a language that is not natural to you, you are not going to be as effective a communicator. And so when I saw Courtney speaking in Jamaican Patois, switching up the cross-examination, and so when he had a black client, he went into a Patois and the client could understand him. I thought, why not? Why not? This is about communication, persuasion, and he's persuading the court, and he's communicating, and he's effective. And so I've said previously, it's important to be who you are and embrace who you are. And I really mean that.
And in the 30 years that I've been at the bar, I've seen advocacy change. I've seen people from up north hold on to their accents and not try to develop some strange southern, um, you know, home counties accent. I've seen many people of colour question using their own voices and, and dialects and do so effectively. And when I've been in front of juries, particularly London juries, I speak like them. And I feel no shame and nobody's going to call me out for doing so. That is embracing who I am and speaking in my own voice. Let me, I'll give you an example. Something that really shocked me and surprised me. I do a lot of international work now and I do a lot of um, big cases, constitutional cases in the Caribbean. I'm called to a few of the Caribbean islands. And I remember being in the Eastern Caribbean Court of Appeal. And it was really funny because this is what I say, it's the legacy and it's the curse of colonialism where white privilege has gone into other countries, the Commonwealth countries, and they've left the mark. And the mark they've left is not good. Because there I was in this court. All the advocates were black. They all looked like me. And they were all speaking, attempting to speak, as if they were in the, the home counties. And I thought, what is this? Why are they doing that? Why aren't they speaking in their natural voice? And it's because they had been taught that to, or they had the belief that to be an effective advocate, they had to change themselves to be something that they weren't. And you know the irony? There I was. I was the only advocate who was a foreigner, as it were, (laughs) because I was born and bred in the UK. And I was speaking with a South London accent in the Eastern Caribbean Court of Appeal, speaking like this. And to me, it was funny, it was bizarre. Embrace your own voice, stick to your own voice, be who you are. Do you have any practical tips around that, around someone using the their personal characteristics to their own advantage? Because from what you said, it just seems really easy, just be yourself and just stick to what you've got. But I was just wondering for some people, might be wondering, like, how do you do that? How do I get comfortable with myself to use my personal voice? You've just touched on it and you've answered your own question. You have to be comfortable with yourself. And that's where you start. It's acknowledging and acceptance that who you are you're just as valuable as the next person in court. I mean, say, this advocacy podcast is looking at advocacy, but advocacy talks about the workplace in which we are in. And the workplace, generally, as a barrister, is the courtroom. Now, part of embracing who you are, and particularly if you're a person of colour, is accepting that, you know, you're not white, you're a person of colour, and, and that's great. And it's also accepting that the work environment that we uh, inhabit may not be accepting of us. And the story that epitomises this is the story that Alexandra Wilson told the other day when she went to court and she was anyone but the barrister. She, you know, she was three times she was mistaken not to be the barrister. And when we begin to acknowledge and call out things like that that happen within our environment, our work space, where we have to advocate, that's when we begin to acknowledge and recognize the value of ourselves. One more example. 
about maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was doing a case in a coroner's court. And this coroner said to me, when I was making a submission, Mr. Thomas, in this country, we don't do things like that. We don't make submissions like that. And the reality is, there's no two ways about it. He was being extremely um, racist. It was a microaggression, it was a macroaggression um, because it, it wouldn't have been and it wasn't something that he would ever say to a white advocate. And here's the thing, in terms of my advocacy then, to my shame, did not call him out. And I wish I had. Because embracing yourself and recognising your own voice, that is something that you need to do when you have judges, other advocates, court staff, who undermine who you are as a person. Now, that wouldn't happen to me today. Maybe that's because I've got QC after my name. Maybe that's because I'm a, a professor of law. And maybe it's because, you know, I've got 30 years more experience. But what's really interesting is there's a new breed of young advocates who are using their voices, using their advocacy and calling that sort of behaviour out. And I hope, you know, particularly doing this podcast with you, Bibi, that if I can get the message across that it is important for particularly young advocates not to be ashamed of how they speak or the submissions they make and to call out things like that when they happen, that will make a real difference in our profession and that difference will be for the good. Absolutely, I completely agree with that. So turning on now to um, case theory and the analysis, tactics and strategies, I've really liked what you said before about part of the root of you being able to have a conversational tone is absolutely getting to grips with the theory of your case. So I was just wondering, like, what's your process for case preparation? And do you have any pointers for getting to grips with the facts and issues? Yeah, I do. The first thing is you just need to understand the story. And to understand the story, you've got to properly read the brief. What I tend to do is, I tend to have an initial read through, not in any great depth, but just an overview so I can see where north, where south, where east and west is, right? And I can position the characters in the story in their place. So that's the first thing I do. And then I ask myself this question after I've got that overview. Does this make sense? And so when I look at, um, say, my client's version of events or my client's case, I will say, does this make sense? Does this hold water? And I will look to see what the gaps are or why it doesn't hold water. I will then do the same exercise with the other side's case. Does this make sense? Does this hold water? Can I give you a concrete example? Definitely, please. So let's say I'm doing a death in custody case and somebody has died in suspicious circumstances whilst they're in police custody. Oftentimes, when I have a case like that, it's very rare to have independent witnesses because if you die in police custody, generally you die in a police station. And so the, generally the only witnesses you have, are, you know, live witnesses you have are going to be the police officers whose custody you are in. And so I look to see whether there are voices other than the police voices that might give me an, an idea. And obviously for me on those cases, it's got to be stuff like the forensic evidence, post-mortem, what story is the post-mortem telling, 
What story is the toxicological report telling me? Is there CCTV? Is there body cam camera footage? So I'll look at all of that. And what I will do is when I'm looking at the story to and asking myself, does this make sense? I will then compare and contrast that with what the police officers are saying and whether their accounts make sense. Now, here's the thing. You will form a view and many times there will be a conflict between one view and another view. Sometimes the evidence will be all one way, but you just get a distinct feeling this doesn't make sense. And so I will use techniques such as I'll ask myself questions about just general human behaviour. Why would this occur? So on a on a death in custody case, generally speaking, the biggest argument that you will face, particularly on a restraint case, is well, you know, these police officers didn't wake up one morning and think that they would go out and kill someone. But, you know, that's not how the world of um, life happens. And so it's accepting that. So what went wrong? Why is it that, you know, these police officers perhaps restrained this individual and it ended in their death? Might be because deficiency in the training. It might be because they were scared, but not scared because of any objective justification it might be because they were just bad and bullying I've seen the lot and what I will do is I will go through those theories in my head and I'll compare and contrast them to the forensic evidence the computer evidence uh, the body cam footage and our form of view and then this is one thing that I do I normally run my case theory as against someone so it might be my partner it might be uh, a friend it might be my mum <laughs> over the years I've run many of my case theories to my mum I say you know mum I'm doing this case what do you think about this if I can get my case theory past somebody who's completely neutral not a lawyer then I know and oftentimes they will give you more insights. But what about this? And you know, oh, I didn't think about that. So that's how I start. Once I've got an idea of the case theory, then I will then drill down into the facts. And I'm very, very methodical in relation to how I crunch facts. Do you want to know what my method is? Yes, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Please. All right. It's a method that I learned years ago from Courtney. <laughs> Courtney is the master of schedules. You know, I've done my own variation on, on this as the years have gone by, and I know that um, pupils that I have trained have done their variation of, of this, but this is it at its core. And what I like about this method is it helps you spot discrepancies and weaknesses in the other side's arguments. And it helps you spot weaknesses and discrepancies in your arguments and, and in your case. You can do this in any area of law, but I'm just gonna use, say, police officers, okay? This is a method that um, you can use in crime. We'll keep it simple. You've got three police officers who are a witness to an incident or who are key, key participants in an incident. What you do is you look to see what their accounts are. And generally speaking, you know that there are likely to be about three accounts for each officer. You've got their notebooks. You've got, if they've done a criminal section nine statement, and they may have done an interview, right? And so then what you do is as between that officer, that, that individual officer, you look and you compare and you contrast their own statements, their own accounts for discrepancies. So you, I, in the schedule that I draw up, I would have a timeline 
and I would start from the beginning to the end and each part of an instant I would describe as a chapter so how when they first met the the defendant or the deceased the first encounter the arrest the struggle the point when they realized that the um, person was no longer breathing and the aftermath let's say you've got those five headings or five chapters so I'd go through those five chapters and I'd literally write it out and I used to you know type it out and I would go through the physical exercise of typing out the notebook in a table um, box table with those five headings literally I'd go through typing it out and I would set it out and I'd separate the chapters and separate the sentences then in another column I would take the next statement, which would be the section nine statement, and I would literally do the same, type it out. And as I'm typing it out, I can I would be able to compare and contrast what's said in the notebook with what's said in the section nine statement. Then the third column, I'll do exactly the same mm-hmm. thing with the interview. It's a laborious and long-winded process, but the thing about it is, it reinforces the story of that individual officer and you will see immediately where there are discrepancies or gaps or internal inconsistencies. I would have that table in relation to that officer, officer A. I'd then do the same with officer B with the officer B's only internal discrepancies and I'll do the same with officer C. Then I would look for external discrepancies. So what are the external discrepancies? external discrepancies will be what officer A says, what officer B says and what officer C says. I would compare and contrast what each of them they say against each other. And again, I'd put that in a table and compare and contrast. By this time, your task is a bit easier because you've already typed it out. And so what you're doing, you're just cut and pasting as against, in a new table, what officer A, B and C have said against each other. And these are the external discrepancies and then I would look for and compare what they say with other sources so custody record perhaps other witnesses and so forth and so on and you will see that what I'm doing I'm building up a picture of internal and external discrepancies which will then feed into my case theory and it also serves as a, a, a foundational document for doing your cross-examination. Now, you know, you'll see that not all discrepancies are significant. In my early days, the mistake I made with this theory, not having the confidence, I would literally question on every single discrepancy. Don't do that now. What I now do is, you know, I now have the experience to know that not all discrepancies are equal. And I highlight and I focus on the discrepancies that are more significant than, than others. That's the process that I use for beginning to develop my case theory. And I can see how that can really compound your own knowledge of the case. Because once you've gone through that entire exercise, you know it at that point. Exactly. And you can explain it to anybody, which is fantastic. So is there anything else that you do in addition to those, those sorts of schedules where you're comparing accounts i see me do a chronology but is there anything yeah. else that you use i do a chronology i mean say um <laughs> these days uh, i'm in the fortunate position that i have juniors who do this for me they crunch the papers but you know when i was when i was a junior i i think chronologies schedules really analyzing what clients are saying and you know it's that old saying isn't it preparation 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 you know you you can't do this job without you know proper preparation um here's the thing though doing this you get faster at it and doing this process you begin to see and you begin to spot patterns in terms of behavior so one thing that i was really adept at when I first started, I think police officers are smarter these days than they were about 20 years ago. There was a real tendency 20 years ago for police officers to copy each other's notebooks. 
and it was foolish because the problem about when you're copying a notebook and you and you're making it out to be your own you have a tendency to copy mistakes from somebody else's this method really highlights the mistakes that and whether people are copying each other because what you'll find is you'll find that people who are copying use the same expressions and text and errors how are you going to exp- <laughs> if we have time for a funny story let me tell you one please i remember i was doing a police action an action against the police in central london county court in the mid 90s there was um one officer who was given evidence and we had his notebook and it, and um he had written an account as to why he had arrested somebody and, and we were saying the client had been wrongly arrested and falsely imprisoned and maliciously prosecuted it was one of those types of cases in civil courts and I had a really impatient and nasty judge who was really go on Miss Thomas you're too slow I'd gone through this method and I had spotted something that was absolutely devastating to the police case now <laughs> the um, officer who I needed to cross examine had suffered uh, years later a really terrible injury which made it really difficult because you have to judge how am I going to cross-examine this officer? And he'd sustained a brain injury, which meant that his memory wasn't very good. And um, the judge was really upset with me. Mr. Thomas, why have you called this witness who who has suffered this brain injury into court to give everyone his memory's no good and we've got medical evidence in relation to that? Your Honour, just bear patience with me. Bit patience. Well, you better make this quick. So the officer goes into the witness box, and um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the officer goes into the witness box, and my first question was, "Officer, I'm really sorry about the um, catastrophic injury that you've suffered. I, I understand." that you um, you have problems with your memory. Oh, yes, Mr. Thomas, I do. And I said, um, and when did those problems with your memory start? Was it at the time of the, the accident you suffered, which was years after this incident? Oh, yeah, that's right, Mr. Thomas, it did. So can I assume then, officer, that before your injury, you didn't have a problem with your memory? And he, he doesn't know where I'm going. He goes, oh, that, yeah, that, that's, that, that's right, Mr. Thomas. Really? So can I, can I take you to your notebook? Mr. Thomas, the judge interrupts me. Where are we going with this? Your Honour, please just bear patience with me. I'm nearly there. So the officer turns up his notebook. And I said, so y- you just said you didn't have problems with your memory. That's right, when you wrote your notebook. I, I, know, I know now you say you can't remember what happened. I get that. But can you just look at the first line? And the first line of the notebook says, I am officer. And he'd wrote his colleague's name. I said, so back then, did you have problems remembering your own name? Can you explain why you would have been writing I am and then put insert in the name of your colleague. In other words, you'd copied this. What's the explanation if your memory was working properly back then? (laughs) (laughs) Judge, judge, shut up. Didn't say another word. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. I love that story. (laughs) So as well as highlighting the important discrepancies by going through those schedules. Does it also highlight for you red herrings? Because what I I know that some people are concerned about is being able to identify what the key issues are and just doing away with those red herrings and going off on a 
folly of their own. Well, the schedule, the schedule does help you do that, but um, identifying the red herons is really understanding your case theory and what your case is about. And which is why I say a great deal of time when it comes to the preparation of your case, you need to understand what is the story. And, you know, one of the things that we teach when we um, do advocacy training is the importance of begin with the end in mind. In other words, imagine that you're in front of the court and you're doing your closing submissions or your closing speech and thinking that through. So you're beginning with the end in mind and thinking to yourself, well, how is, if I'm doing my closing speech, there are all these discrepancies. Some of them are gonna be good, some of them are gonna be not so good. Which of the discrepancies that you've spotted are gonna assist you in your closing speech? Because I can tell you one thing. Oftentimes, I find that I might have spotted maybe 10 discrepancies, only about three of them are going to be significant or what points I'm going to be, want to run with. And it's doing that filtering stage in your case theory at the beginning when you begin with the end in mind. The level of detail and um, work that you have to do in order to canvas all those facts and marshal them so it actually makes sense to you and anyone that you're going to be advocating too means that it is a lot of work we can't guess away from that as trial lawyers and I say trial lawyers because of course this is going out internationally and I suppose from that would you also agree then that knowing what your closing speech is going to be and knowing your case theory is essential before you even start embarking on preparing for the examination in chief or cross-examination but does that also apply to the tactics you're going to employ and the strategies I'm going to say that there are shortcuts, actually. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I, I think... I, <laughs> but, but you see, the shortcuts come with experience. Each case is different on its own facts, and you've, there's no way that you can avoid not knowing the facts of your case. But let, let me tell you something. When you are dealing with an area of law that occurs and is repetitive... There are going to be shortcuts in terms of the way you prepare the case. And I can, I, I can give you a couple of examples, actually, in the work that I do. So, restraint deaths. I've done a ton of restraint deaths in the course of my career. The questioning never changes. The questioning is always the same. And I know that the excuses that I get from police officers, prison officers, so on. It's nearly always the same in terms of their justification for why they felt the need to restrain and why they restrained in a certain position. And because their training now is fairly universal, you know that the questions that you're going to be asking them is likely to be similar from case to case. And therefore, having done a couple of these cases, you will see patterns emerge. And it shortcuts the preparation because you know where to look, you know what they're likely to say, and you know what the answers or how you're going to counter those answers, what it's likely to be. And I'm quite sure that that is the same for many areas of law when you're doing work that is repetitive there will be areas of cross-examination that you can, as it were, plug and play from one case to another case. So to that extent, there's a shortcut. But I agree with you. Each case does have individual facts and you do need to be on top of your individual facts. We obviously know that you're very good at developing your own case theories, but during your experience, what mistakes have you seen your opponents make in terms of the way that they've executed their case theory or their case strategy? I think the biggest mistake that I see from opponents is being blind to the court, not listening, being tone deaf, just not getting it. So I was doing a case recently, I, I shall spare blushes, but my opponent was just completely tone deaf to the jury. He just wasn't observing the jury and seeing that 
he was making a bunch of really bad points. Now, you know, we all make bad points, right? You cannot do this job without, at some point in your career, making a bad point. You, you will make a bad point. But, having made a bad point, at least try to be aware of it. And there are clues. So, when a judge says to you, Mr. Thomas, I don't think that's your best point. You need to listen to that. <laughs> or when you're cross-examining a witness and you're wondering how this is coming across to the jury and the jury stiffen in their chairs, fold their arms and, you know, more or less tut. And they ain't tutting at the witness you need to be aware of that. And, and that's the one thing that I think that I've developed over the years. I think I'm pretty clued up as to when I'm making a duff point. And many of my opponents who, you know, make me, you know, hang my head and just shake my head, just haven't developed an awareness of what is going on around them. So speaking about those those bad points obviously the weaknesses in everyone's case as you were mentioning but how do you deal with those because sometimes I try to you know step into the person's shoes use common sense so for example I do family law a parent got really angry with a professional so I think okay yeah they have anger problems but let's drill down and look into why and perhaps be able to explain it so it isn't just that hard fact which is they get angry at professionals they and it leads on to they don't work with professionals instead and that's a specific example but I was just wondering if you have a way of addressing those weaknesses in your cases so that you either neutralize them or reduce the impact that they have on your case theory yeah and I think um the example you've given is is a good example and the techniques you use are excellent techniques and I, and I would endorse those techniques Bibi. I think the techniques I use are similar. The first thing I would say and again we teach this when we teach advocacy you can't be an ostrich. You can't hide your head in the sand if you've got difficult points that need to be addressed. You've got to confront them. Now the question is, how and when do you confront them? And I like the tips that they give speech writers. When you do a good speech, people, your audience, tend to remember the beginning of the speech the end of the speech, things about themselves, so if they're, they're, their own name, sex, and what you need to do when you've got duff points in your case is firstly know where to position them. You know, I've seen some advocates start with um, a duff point as their very first point. Oh, well, you might think this and they, and they really blow it up. And you've got to be careful about how you do that because people remember the beginning and they remember the end. So oftentimes it's not the wisest thing to do to, the very first thing to do is to embrace the bad points. And for the same, similar reasons, it's not a good thing to end on the bad points because that's the last thing that you're leaving, leaving the tribunal with. So slot it in appropriately somewhere in the middle. And secondly, don't shy away from it. Deal with it. The worst thing you can do is just to ignore it and leave it for your opponent, or worse still, for the job. Oh, Mr. Thomas, why haven't you dealt with this? Ah, oh, you haven't dealt with it because you can't deal with it. Ah, oh, because it's a really big point against you. Great advice. Thank you for that. Um, I was also wondering if there's a difference in the way that you position yourself 
when it comes to certain witnesses. And the reason why I'm asking that is because obviously if someone's vulnerable, you might take a softer tone. If someone's a professional, you might have a different tone there. But what I've noticed and I don't like is when there's a huge difference in being really very softly, softly with a particular person and then the next witness, someone is the same advocates really harsh. And I don't think that necessarily works well with juries. But what's your take on that? I think you need a degree of consistency so you you have a degree of authenticity because that's the point you're making because if there is too much of an extreme then um, the court will see through it and certainly juries you know juries aren't stupid you know juries are, are, are ordinary people and they you know ordinary people you can tell when somebody's being fake and this comes back to developing your own voice and developing your own style I have a very personalised style when I'm questioning. Maybe people can see through it. it. It's quite methodical. I don't. I don't tend to think about it these days because it's just me. With most witnesses, I will. Before I get to my feet, I will ask myself: Do I need to get to my feet with this witness? That's the difference between an experienced advocate and uh, and an inexperienced advocate. Inexperienced advocates feel that they have to ask questions of every witness. I don't. I'm often arguing with those who instruct me. Say, no, 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 no. We don't need to touch this witness. You know, we, you know, um, just leave it alone. And so I, I will think as to whether I need to ask questions. The point you make, with, you know, how do I deal with vulnerable witnesses, and is there a big distinction between vulnerable witnesses and and not? Generally speaking, not really, because these days, as I said, my tone tends to be much more relaxed. And what I'm trying to do, even with when I'm, you know, even if I know there's a witness I need to go for, I will start off. I won't just immediately go for them, because you know you immediately have a brick wall put up in front of you. So I always try to start with a series of facts that the witness and I can agree on. And in a very conversational style, I say, look, you know, look, you and I can, we can agree on this, can't we? We can agree on X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you tend to let the witness put their guard down and relax a bit, and then you come to the more contentious stuff. And and because I'm, because I've got that sort of style you can use it with vulnerable witnesses. Look, we, we can agree on, you know, this. And tone is important. And it comes back to the very first thing I was saying to you, Bibi. Um, if you were speaking to younger me, the advice I would be given, given to younger me, no, Lizzie, you don't come out and shout at witnesses. Uh, well, certainly not straight away. <laughs> actually, you should, actually, actually, you shouldn't be shouting at witnesses. You should treat witnesses with respect. <laughs> but, you know... That's not to say you shouldn't question witnesses robustly when they need to be questioned robustly. The whole thing, that that jazz analogy that I gave, different tones, I think, you know, you can, I think it's important to vary your tone in terms of the composition that you are bringing out before the court, but to make it consistent with your case theory. And your case theory, if you've got a vulnerable witness, I gave you the example of the officer who had the brain injury. He was a vulnerable witness. I wasn't aggressive with him. Didn't need to be. The judge was aggressive with me. The judge was impatient and couldn't see where I was going. But when I dropped what I needed to drop, um, did you have problems with your memory before the incident? No. Can you explain why you've written your colleague's name down then. I am. That was it. I just dropped it there. Sat down. Jury got it. Leslie, can you give three practical tips for listeners to improve their advocacy? Number one, advocacy is a constant search for improvement and self-education. In other words, it, it never stops. I constantly am educating myself. And I do that with the training that I do. I learn all, every time I give an advocacy class, I learn from the 
um, students that I have or the new practitioners or young practitioners. So it's a, a lifelong um, pursuit, lifelong study pursuit. And I, I think you need to recognise that. Secondly, you cannot divorce good advocacy from life. I think you need to be able to bring life experience into your advocacy and that assists with the storytelling and I like to do that I, I you know maybe that's just my style you know I'm a conversationalist and I think to be a good conversationalist you need to have um, good stories to tell and to have good stories to tell that means you need to keep your eyes open as to what's happening in the world and what's happening around you the last tip I would give is I think it's important to really understand your case theory and go back to your case theory. <laughs> I always say to young advocates, you know, just convince me, you know, what is it? What's the theory you want to get across the court and see if, you know, see if you can get it past me. So I, I think those are the three practical tips that I would say that would help people or should help people improve their advocacy. Thank you so much. And where can our listeners connect with you online? They can follow me on Twitter, at underscore Leslie, that's Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. And um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, just search for me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been an incredibly insightful time for me and I'm definitely sure that other listeners think the same thing and I have a bucket load of tips that I'm going to start employing. So thank you very much, Leslie. I've really appreciated you being here. Look, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, I feel really honoured that um, you would invite me on to um, share my ideas. Thank you, Bibi. Great, great show. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.